Everybody, we are in the sixth week of our Call of Duty series as we're studying the life of the warrior King David. We will wrap up today, this week and the next week will be the final week of our series. If I could, by way of just quick review, we began on Father's Day by probably starting with the highlight of David's life and his reign as King of Israel. It is the moment where David says in his heart, I want to build God a house. I want to build him a temple. And God flips that around and says, oh no. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, and one of your descendants will sit on your throne forever. And this is this big uh, climactic moment in the life of David. And the question for us is, why David? Like, why would the God of the universe look down and see this man and say, you, you're the one that I will choose and pick? Because I don't think this was accidental. I don't think this was happenstance. Like, what we know is at the end of David's life, when everything's been said and done, through all the highs and lows, the moments of triumph and defeat, God will testify about David. It says in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I need him to do or that I want him to do. And see, that's what, at the end of my life, I would love for God to be able to say, I have found Sam, son of Chuck, a man after my own heart, that I could trust him to do everything that I want him to do. And so what was it about David? See, I think there was something about his life and his heart and his character that allowed God to say about him and to invest so much in him. And listen, I think this is good news for most men is that when you look at the thread that goes through David's life and what it is that David has, it doesn't seem to me to be some religious or moralistic expectation that you commonly hear taught in modern Christianity. David is never commended in the Bible because he doesn't smoke, drink, or chew, or date girls that do. Like, you don't, you don't ever hear that about David. David is never commended in the Bible because he was able to finish his Bible year Bible reading plan in one year that he set out to do on January 1st of every year. David is never held up as a man after God's own heart because of his ability to join a men's small group and together discuss their relationship with Jesus for an hour or an hour and a half of time. Nowhere in the Bible does David get commended because he's got the biggest Hillsong worship CD collection out of anybody in Israel. Now listen, I'm not discounting the value of those things, only that I wonder if what we hold up as the ideal in Christian maturity and growth might be off just a tad bit, at least compared to what we see being actually commended in God's servants and even Jesus' earliest disciples. And so here's what we've been studying then over the past couple of weeks of what it is that we do see in David's life by way of a consistent thread. And so the very next week we talked about the fact that David is a man who has amazing faith. I mean, it transcends just mental assent that God exists, and it moves to a place that leads him to action and great loyalty. And so we looked at the story of David as he defeated Goliath, and we led to the question of, so if you have faith, this amazing faith, what are you doing with that faith? What in your life has led you to action on behalf of the kingdom of God because of that faith? And then the next week, we took a look at David as a man full of honor. He honors other people, and he honors God. And listen, honor is different than respect. Respect is something that is earned or, or that you deserve respect in that particular way. And so there are people in your life that has earned your respect, but honor is freely given. You can honor people even if they don't deserve respect. And this is what you see in the life of David. He refuses to act in any way other than honor. When King Saul is trying to kill him, not very respectful. It's hard to respect King Saul as he's trying to kill David, yet David will say, 
I will not lay my hand against the Lord's anointed. He will always act honorably towards others and towards God. We also saw the next week that David is obedient to God in all things. And I don't mean by that that he's able to check off this list of God wants me to do this and God wants me to do that, but rather that David is sensitive to the things of God. What matters to the heart of God matters to David's heart. And that manifests itself in two major ways over and over again in the life of David. One, David has the ability to wait on God. Like David has this ability, I'll sit in this cave for years if I have to. I will not move before God tells me to move. And he's able to wait on God. And that's a huge test for each one of us. Like, are we able to sit and wait on God's timing for things in our life? But the second thing coupled with that is David's ability to always inquire of God before he does anything. And so you'll see over and over again in the life of David, he inquires of the Lord, which is usually the opposite of what I do. What I want to do is, this is what I want, this is how I want to do it, and so I make out my plans, and then in the end, I ask God to bless it, which is a totally different thing than inquiring of God to begin with and see what... And so because David is able to wait on the Lord and inquire of the Lord, it moves him to live a life of great obedience. But as we looked last week, like you and me, David too is a sinner. And sometimes in David's life, he blows it big time. I mean, huge failures. So much so that when I get done reading it, I think to myself, really? This is a man after God's own heart? Like God trusts him to do everything he wants him to do? And so we looked at the story last week of David and Bathsheba where nothing short of committing adultery, stealing another man's wife, trying to cover it up with all sorts of schemes, and eventually killing off Uriah himself. The question is, when you blow it big time, how do you respond? So when David is confronted with his failures, what we see in his heart is this response, humility and repentance. When he recognizes that he's blown it, he's messed up, he responds in humility and he doesn't make an excuse, he doesn't blame it on his mother, he doesn't blame it on this, he, he recognizes, I have sinned against the Lord. And repentance and humility is what we see. Now here's what I'd say as we move on to this morning. Everyone in this room is afraid of something. That everyone here has fears. And granted, by way of personality, some of you may have a longer list of fears than others, but I'm telling you, in the end, everyone is afraid of something. The thought of it. And by it, I mean a broad range of things. It could be certain objects or particular situations or contexts or just spiders. Now listen, you might not speak of your fears. You might keep them close to your chest. You might put on a brave face or a fearless face. But I'm telling you, there's something, something that strikes fear into your heart. If we had enough time in therapy, I promise we'd all come out with some phobia diagnosis. In fact, let me share with you some phobias that people have. And let me, let's see if you can guess what this is. Pelodophobia. Anyone know what that is? The fear of what? Do you know what that is? Bald people. Some people are afraid of bald people. If you're not afraid of bald people, you might have pogonophobia. You know what that's the fear of? Beards. So if you've got both and you are bald with a beard, somebody's flipping out around you right now. <laughs> Based on some of your life behaviors, it sounds to me like some of you have Chromatophobia, you know what that is? The fear of chrome? No, it's the fear of money. If you have a fear of money. Now, here's one that's probably more common than we'd like to admit. Penthrophobia, you know what that is? It's the fear of your mother-in-law. Right? So, ladies, if your husband gets a little anxious, he might have penthrophobia. Let me give you another one. Arithmophobia, you know what that is? Look at the words here. Arithmophobia, you know what that's the fear of? Not just the fear of math, it's the fear of numbers. The fear of numbers. 
So as I tell my kids, you don't need math in life. We all have calculators nowadays. I'm just kidding. What about this one? Some of you have this, so I know. Ergophobia. You know what that is? The fear of work. The fear of work. Some of you might be afflicted with anuptophobia. You know what that is? That's the fear of staying single. Anyone know anyone with this fear? You see? Here's one that I'm growing in terms of what I'm fear, afraid of. If I can say it right. F-A-biphobia. You know what that is? The fear of teenagers. <laughs> it's a real fear. That's right. Since your kids enter the house, you feel that anxiety. You might have this. But guess what this one is? Gymnophobia. You know what this is? Gymnophobia. Yeah, you think it's a fear of exercise. It's not. It's the fear of nudity. Right? I think this one is cruel. Can I give you, give me, let me give you another one. Sesquipetalophobia. You know what that is? It's the fear of long words. <laughs> it's like, they're trying to come up with, what should we call this? Let's make it the longest word we can. Okay, I want, let's raise a hand. Who has arachibutyrophobia? I'm skipping a few here, Janae. Arachibutyrophobia. It's, it's the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Anyone? <laughs> Anyone have that? Anthrophobia, you know what that is? It's the fear of people. And finally, this one is funny to me. Phobophobia, you know what that is? The fear of fear. It's, I, I have a fear of developing any of these phobias. It's making me anxious. Now, fear is a reality of our existence in this fallen world. And the Bible seems to acknowledge this because over 365 times the Bible will use this phrase, do not be afraid or have no fear. And think about that for a moment, the frequency, just even in the ministry of Jesus, how many times he has to keep saying to his disciples, do not be afraid, have no fear. I think that's significant because if you realize that following, listen, if you're really following Jesus, I promise you, you will have fear-inducing moments. That when you think about what we've been called to, listen, God is in the process of trying to make all things new, that through the death of Life and burial and resurrection of Jesus, he's trying to restore and reconcile all of creation to what it was supposed to be. And Paul says, so if you're following after Jesus, we don't get out of this business. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation, he'll say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, of joining God in restoring the earth to what God originally intended to begin with. And it's a great and it's a daunting task full of opposition. And those who went before us often paid a heavy price to be ministers of reconciliation. Many went through great suffering and paid great sacrifices and even death itself. And by the way, there are spiritual forces of evil aligned against us as we try to follow after Jesus in the ministry of reconciliation. And when you really catch a glimpse of this, you'll see that, listen, Jesus' purpose for the church isn't to build a nice building and offer the best coffee out of any other church in your area. Jesus' purpose for the church isn't to gather in holy huddles and shelter ourselves from outsiders. No, no. The purpose that Jesus gives to his church is to take on the gates of hell itself, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, and in it he assumes because each one of us will have the Holy Spirit, he says in John 14, verse 12, and you'll do even greater things than I did. And Jesus assumes that if you really caught a glimpse of what God wants to do in the world through your life, it might overwhelm you. And perhaps invoke in you some fear. 
you might get a little scared. And that's why I think at the end of Jesus' ministry, as he's about to ascend to go back with his father, and he's got his apostles there, he gives them a commission. Now you're going to go take on the world. And I promise you, they were probably afraid, a little anxious, and you want us to do what? And that's why at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has to say to them, now listen to me, listen. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age. See, what's Jesus doing? Look, I know you're probably overwhelmed by this, probably a little bit of fear, a little anxiety. I want you to know I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Like, you can't get more authority than what I have. And I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age. He's saying, basically, don't be afraid. And so, if you're at, well, how do I know that this is God's calling on my life? Like, how do I know this is what he's really calling me to do? My answer would be, if it really is a calling from God, it should be a little scary. It should invoke a little fear. I mean, if your first and initial thought is, I can't do that, or that's too big for me, or that's too great for me, and you start thinking, well, I don't have this, and I don't have that, and you start to fill in the blank of excuses of, I don't have any experience doing something like that, or I don't really know enough about, I don't have enough Bible memorized to do something like that, or I've never done that before. And we fill in those blanks. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too poor. I'm I'm not an eloquent speaker. I'm too new at this Jesus thing. If God's calling in your life overwhelms you or makes you afraid, that to me is a sign this might be from God. Because I don't think God is going to call you to something that doesn't need Him involved in it. Like, if God gives you something and you're like, oh, yeah, I've got this, even my, in my natural capacity, in my, who I am in terms of my makeup, I can do this, what that means is you don't need God. What that means is you won't need to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you don't even need the Holy Spirit. You got this, right? This is what you can do on your own. You don't need faith, faith, and in the end, you don't need courage. And I'm telling you, if it's a calling from God, it should invoke some fear because you're going to need God to accomplish it. You're going to need the power of the Spirit to pull it off. And in the end, you'll need faith, and you're going to need courage. And that is what we see in the life of David. One consistent thread in David's life, it's not the absence of fear. It's what he does in the face of fear. It's how he responds in fear. And so when you get afraid, do you collapse under it? Or do you stare in the face of fear and say, bring it? Now, see, we've already seen in the story of David and Goliath the amazing courage in the heart of David. I mean, he stares down this giant, and I don't think because he has no fear or not because he's not aware, dude, that's a nine-foot, six-inch giant, but simply because he knows God. And I don't think David is without fear. He simply knew what to do with fear. And when you survey all of the, or if you just study all the great heroes of our faith, what they all have in common is this bold courage. And it's what Jeff read to us this morning during worship, the story of Joshua. Like God says to Joshua, hey, you're going to take over from Moses, and you're going to lead the people into the promised land. And Joshua's thinking, you want me to take over from Moses? The Moses. You think I'm going to be able to fill Moses' shoes, and you want me to, to conquer all those nations and take over the promised land? And so three times in the first chapter of Joshua, God has to say to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Yeah, it's overwhelming. Yeah, it's a little fear and anxiety-inducing. And Yeah, you're probably a little afraid. I, I totally get it. But be strong and courageous. And so we just look at all the, the, the figures in the Bible, like Moses, all of the judges, David, the prophets, even Mary. Think about the mother of Jesus. Like an angel shows up and says, you're pregnant, and you've got to tell all of your friends and family it's actually from the Holy Spirit. I mean, that takes courage to walk in and through that. Jesus himself, bold courage. All of Jesus' apostles, bold, and now listen, all of them had fear. 
It's not about they didn't have any fear. In fact, do you remember Jesus on the night he was betrayed is in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember that scene, what's happening here? I mean, what do you see in Jesus? He's full of fear. He's full of anxiety. The Gospels tell us that it's like he is sweating drops of blood because of the overwhelming feelings of anxiety that's coming over him. In fact, what's his prayer to the Father? What does he ask God to do? Hey, if you can get me out of this, I'd be more than happy to figure out some other way. But what does Jesus do in the face of that? Nevertheless, your will, not mine. I'm going to follow whatever path you've got for me, and I'm going to be obedient no matter. I mean, he can stare faith, he could stare fear and anxiety right in the face and say, I'm still going to follow after God and be obedient. That's courage. What distinguishes God's great servants and heroes is not the absence of fear. It's what they do in the face of it. Do they retreat into panic? Are they paralyzed on it? Do they abandon God's calling because they're scared? Or do they do everything they can to get out of it? Or do they face fear head on and keep moving forward? See, and this is where we understand the true definition of courage. courage listen to me. Courage is not the absence of fear. And we tend to think that people who are courageous don't feel fear. No. Fear is a prerequisite to courage. It takes no courage to do something that you're not afraid of or scared of or anxious or nervous to do. I have never required courage to take a nap. Sam, I need you to take a nap. No, no, I'm like, all right, I could do this, right? Doesn't take any courage on my part to eat a plate of cheese fries. I know what I'm doing. I've got no fear in it. But when God says, hey, I need you to lead the church in a massive shift of DNA and focus uh, your vision on 42,500 people who live on the south side of South Bend, and oh, by the way, as you do that, half of the church will leave, including some of your best friends, now that will require some courage. Courage is feeling those feelings and moving forward anyhow. Courage is the mastery over fear, not the absence of fear. And this is the marker of David's life, not that he lives with the absence of fear, rather he has mastery over his fear. And in the face of fear, he moves forward anyhow. And so what happens is you have highlight moments. Like picture like, you know, on ESPN when they give you the top ten, like highlight reel of you, this game, this scene happened. I mean, it's not the whole game, it's just this highlight. You've got that in David's life, right? You've got the David and Goliath story. David defeats the Philistines in triumphant fashion. I mean, that makes a highlight reel. Or when he unifies all of Israel under his leadership and kingship, that should make a highlight reel. And you're going to have some highlight moments too in your life. But they're not going to happen every day. In fact, you might not even get one this entire year. And at the end of your life, if we were to tell your story like they do in the Bible, we might have maybe a handful of highlight reel moments of your great courage. But my guess is your life will be spent maybe even daily Needing, however, to manifest courage in moments that don't feel like this would ever make a highlight reel. But I want you to know they're just as important. And I'd like you to look at just a little different angle of, yes, David has this moment with Goliath, and it's, oh, highlight reel. But David has to live his life every day manifesting moments of courage that probably in the end won't make it to a highlight reel. And you'll have the same situation. And so I want you to see kind of the everyday manifestations of courage that will happen in your life. I'm going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Here's a story about David and a man named Nabal and his wife Abigail. It starts in verse 1 by letting us know, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and then they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down to the desert of Paran. Now a certain man in Moan, this is verse 2, who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had, three, he had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which you're thinking, yeah, but that's, that's big-time money back then, like 1,000 goats, 3,000 sheep. 
which he was shearing in Carmel. Now, his name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the Bible tells us she was an intelligent and beautiful woman, right? So she is good-looking, and she is smart. That's Nabal's wife, Abigail. But her husband, Nabal, was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite, which at 11.55, my middle son Caleb will be here. I'm looking forward to letting him know all Calebites seem to be surly and mean. Verse 4, while David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name and say to him, a blessing here, look, long life to you, good health to you and your household and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Now, what that means is Nabal's shepherds were intermingling in the same area as David's men. And what David is pointing out is we made sure they were not mistreated. We made sure that everything that belonged to you remained with you. We didn't take anything. I mean, we, I mean, we were good to your servants. He says, ask your own servants and they'll tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal the message in David's name. Then they waited. So this is the answer that Nabal gives back. David ans- Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? And who is this son of Jesse? <laughs> you know, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? Now just as a side note, Nabal knows David. Now, David has not yet unified all of Israel under his kingship, but David is still, he's king of Judah. They've got songs about David, about how many people he's, I mean, David is known. He knows the name of David. He knows he belongs to, he's a son of Jesse. So this is a complete insult. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? He wants to, he was like, hey, you know, a lot of servants are breaking away from their masters. It's an insult right back. Verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. So David said to each of his men, Strap on your sword, and so they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So here's what they get back. David gets the message, and he's like, oh, no, you don't. And so everyone get on your swords, and we're going at it. Now here's what happens next, verse 14. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, hey, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, and he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, there were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So here's what Abigail does, verse 18. Abigail acts quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five saves of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins. Oh, come on raisin cakes, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and she loaded them on a donkey. Now, let me tell you about Abigail here. She is beautiful, she is smart, and she has food. This is the trifecta of (laughs) awesomeness right here. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you, and she didn't tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending towards her, and she met them. Now, picture, they're in pursuit. Like 400 men are coming after Nabal in his household. And David David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. Now, you know what it's like to stew on something? 
Like you keep making speeches about it even well after the incident. Like that's what's happening with David. He's so angry and he's so fired up because he's been insulted. Like he's with his men still going on. Can you believe he treated me like that? It's been a waste of time. And so here's what he says. Look at verse 22. This is strong. This is the language of an oath. May God deal with David. Like when you go third person, you know this is serious, right? May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one alive, leave alive one male of all who belong to him. You hear what David says? This is big time here. David is making a vow. Before, May the Lord deal with me, with David, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow morning there's a single man alive in the household of Nabal. So that's what his plan is. I'm killing all of them. So verse 20, as she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men. Oh, I was right there, right? Where am I at now? Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool. Isn't that interesting? Nabal means fool. He's an idiot. He's a fool. And folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see them in my Lord's son. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. You hear what she's doing here? Good thing I met you here because I've been able to, God has been able to stop you from avenging yourself and committing this bloodshed. From avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Isn't that interesting, the metaphor she uses? You might like that one story where you had a sling and you killed Goliath. That's what God's going to do to all your enemies. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him rule over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or have avenging himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord to success, remember your servant. So David says this to Abigail. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if, it had not come, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. Now, after the fact, here's what happens. This is interesting to me. When Abigail went to Nabal, he's in his house, and he's holding a banquet as if he's a king. And it says he's very, he's in high spirits and he's drunk. So that night she didn't say a word to him until the next day. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things. Like, hey, by the way, 400 men including David were coming after you to kill you and every man in this house. And at, at this, his heart failed him and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail. Remember Abigail? She's beautiful. She's intelligent. She's got food. 
asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. So she bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and I am ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. So Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. Like this is the classic, I stole your girlfriend. That's what David has done to Nabal. Okay, now I want you to see something here out of this story. Now David has suffered a great insult. And it wasn't like just some anonymous email that no one else saw. I mean, this was in front of all of his men. It was in front of all those who were under his command. And as you would expect, everything in him flares with anger over the contempt and the insult, especially in front of everyone. And so David's going to go show Nabal a thing or two, and we learn that David's intent is, in fact, to avenge himself by killing every male in the household of Nabal. They all take up swords to go ready. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to stop an angry mob intent on righting a wrong, but it's difficult. But here comes Abigail, who's smart and beautiful and loaded with food. She meets David, with who is charging, and pleads with him to not be guilty of bloodshed and avenging himself. And this is the moment where David has to make a choice. And don't think for a moment that probably in David's mind he wasn't thinking things like this. If I call off the attack, even if it's the right thing to do, Am I going to look weak in front of my men? Will they think less of me? What if others hear about how Nabal treated me? I mean, will they be emboldened then to not respect me? Is this any way to assume the throne of Israel? And when I read Machiavelli's The Prince, he let me know it's better to be feared than loved. There's a lot on the line here. That David, through Abigail, is presented with the right thing. And I'm telling you, fear is in this equation. If David backs down or does the right thing, who knows what others will think? And there's anxiety about the future, and there's concern about his reputation and what others will think. There's full of what-if moments, and it is a moment of courage. It is that moment when you have to take all of your fears and all of your anxieties and all of your concerns and all of your what-ifs and stare it in the face and with courage in your heart say, but I'm going to do the right thing. This isn't a story of David and Goliath to me. I'm not sure I would even add this to the list of David's highlight reels in regards to amazing courage. But when I read it, I see courage still. And the kind of courage that you will be confronted with on a daily basis. The courage to do the right thing, even in our daily situations. Listen, you might not have a highlight reel moment in your life, even for the next several years. But you probably will, maybe even this week, have a real moment of needing courage to do the right thing, even in the little things. Now, what I know to be true pastorally is sometimes it takes a mountain of courage just to walk away from the drugs tomorrow. Now, that might not make a highlight reel of your life, but it will take real courage, sometimes a mountain of courage tomorrow to say no to the drugs that are in front of you. Or for others, it will take a mountain of courage to go ahead and exit out of that website. It might not make the highlight real, but it is courage nonetheless. Or when you're filling out those forms that you got from the government for help, and you know if you kind of fudge this number here, it will mean a big difference in terms of what you'll get from the government. And after all, they're spending trillions every year, so what's a couple extra thousand? It might be for you the courage to actually fill in the right and honest and true number on that form. And for others of you, it might be a amount of courage to just write the child support check that you owe, no matter what the what-ifs that are coming into your mind. 
It might not make a highlight reel of your life, but it's courage nonetheless. For others of you, it will be going into the office tomorrow and having to admit to the boss, you really did do that. You made that purchase, and it's on you. When everything in you is like, he did it, she did it, somebody did it, I don't know who did it, it wasn't me. It might take a mountain of courage just to speak the truth. And looking back, each one of those things might not be on your top five greatest moments of bravery, but they're the things that happen on a very frequent basis that still requires a heart of courage. My guess is like David, you might even this week get an opportunity to be insulted. And everything in you will want to move towards vengeance and your own bloodshed, which for us usually takes the form of things like gossip and slander. But the question will be, will you have the courage not to? And I know your ex-husband is treating you in a way that's shameful or insulting or reveals that like Nabal, he's just a fool. But the question for you will be, will you be able to move forward doing the right thing anyhow? Sometimes that requires a mountain of courage. And this is the thread that you'll see when you study the life of David. They're little moments. They're not necessarily the big highlight reel. They're little moments where Joab will say to David in the, in, the, in the face of something going on, whether it's an insult or some injustice, do you want me to go ahead and kill them? And David will say, no, don't, don't kill them. In fact, there's one story where uh, David's been, uh, he's been thrown off of his throne by his son Absalom, so he's on the run. And one of Saul's descendants is running alongside them, just taunting David, throwing rocks at him and his men and all sorts of insults. Finally, their men have had enough. And they say to David, do you want me to kill this guy? Because we can just run a sword through him right now. And David says, no. We're not going to commit bloodshed like this. In fact, I don't know that this is, he hasn't been sent by God to keep me humble. That's what David responds with. Like, could you imagine that, having that perspective? Somebody's insulting you and you're able to look in the face of it and go, listen, I'm not going to avenge myself. And there's a chance that God sent this person into my life to keep me humble. These are the acts of courage, even in the context of the mundane, the ordinary, and the everyday life experience. What's true is a lot of these characteristics overlap. Why is David courageous? Because he has faith. Why does he keep moving forward? Because he's obedient. Why does he do the right thing and trust God will take care of it? Because of his humility. But let me suggest two things for you in regards to courage as we wrap up this morning. One is I would say courage is a gift from God and you can ask for it. Like if you feel like you're lacking in courage, if it feels like you're suffering under a spirit of fear, if it feels like you're lacking the ability to move forward in something in life that you know God is calling you to, or even the ability to do the right thing, in spite of the consequences that you fear, you can ask God for courage. Now, if you're a parent, you know this feeling. You know, sometimes one of your children is timid about something or scared of something or has a lot of fear. And everything in you as a parent wants to help them overcome that. Like you, you don't want them to live a life of fear. You don't want them to be timid. You don't want them to be insecure. You want them to move in confidence. And I'm telling you, God's a much better parent than you are. Like, and he, he doesn't want to see his children living in fear or timidity or being scared of those situations. He wants to give us, as a gift, courage. In fact, I would, you can ask for it. And I would say, because of the power of the word, some verses I think you should memorize. Let me give you one I think you should commit to memory. It's 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says this, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. Now, see, if you commit that to memory and then there's something in your life that rises up that you start to feel afraid or anxious, right, you know that feeling? You just speak right back to it and say, oh, no. No, the spirit that God gave me does not lead me to fear. It does not lead me to timidity. Rather, it gives me power and love and self-discipline. But the second thing, not only is courage a gift from God, and you could ask for it, but second, courage is a byproduct of your relationship with God. 
courage is rooted in your relationship with God. As you move deeper into connection with God, you'll learn to trust Him more, and that trust will build in you courage. See, David is relationally connected to God, and because of that, he trusts Him. Doesn't mean he's not afraid. Doesn't mean he has moments of anxiety. He just can remember, oh no, when that bear came after me and the sheep, I mean, I saw what God did in my life and how He gave me victory over it. And when that lion showed up, no, I remember what God did in my life and how He gave me victory over it. And those are the foundational things that when He meets a giant, He already knows He's relationally connected to God because what God has already done in His life, I can face down this giant. And as you are relationally connected to God, it will give you the courage to face an insult. Because you'll trust that God can handle this insult. You don't need to avenge yourself because you'll trust God can do it. This is why in the end when David's about to pass the mantle on to his son Solomon, like this is the end of David's life, David will say this in 1 Chronicles 28 verse 20. David said to Solomon his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He's not going to fail or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. You hear what David is saying? Oh, no, listen, don't be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid because my Lord, my God, is going to be with you. And he won't let you fail. It's that relational connection. And in the end, here's what I know. Did you know courage begets courage? Like I'm a big believer in emotional contagion. Like the people you hang out with, their emotions, they will be contagious to you. So if you hang out with people who are depressed and complaining all the time, eventually you will be depressed and you'll complain all the time. If you hang out with everybody, if all of your friends are bitter, that will affect you, and you will find that your thoughts and your behavior can lean towards bitterness. The same thing on the opposite side. If you hang out with people who are full of joy and full of life and full of optimism, that will be contagious to you as well. But courage is one of those emotions. What's interesting to me, and I'd encourage you to read it when you go home, this is why, this is why there's no room especially in survival mode for negativity and pessimism. Like on the battlefield, no commander has the luxury to ask the soldiers, hey, do you guys feel all right about this? I mean, you, are you okay? Do you want to do this? I mean, oh, no, we, don't, we have no room for this. But David, uh, when he begins in that cave, it says 400 men show up to him, and it says about them that they're discontented, they're distressed, and they're in debt. Like they're a motley crew. But if you'll go home and read Second Samuel chapter 23, all of those men, they're now referred to as the mighty men of David. And it just tells stories of their exploits and what they do and the things that they accomplish. They went from that motley crew of distressed, in debt, discontented men to men that because of their leader, David, had such courage it empowered in them, great courage, and they did great things. So go home and read Second Samuel 23. But let me encourage you to live your life, not just the highlight reel, but I mean your everyday life, with the courage to face whatever fear and anxiety or possible negative what-if that comes to mind with the ability to still move forward anyhow. And may those daily decisions of courage allow God to look from heaven and say about you, he or she is a man or woman after my own heart. And I could trust them to do everything that I need them to do. Amen? Let's stand together and pray. Father, we come to you and we're asking that the spirit that you've given to us that dwells within us would empower us with great courage. And I don't mean just for that highlight moment of life, but I mean every day, like when we show up into the office or to school or into whatever relationship context that we have where we know we need to do the right thing, but we start to get anxious or afraid, what we want to do is be able to face fear right into the eyes and say, oh no, we're moving forward anyhow. But we want to have mastery over it and then to live lives of great courage. So would you give us that as a gift for your glory and for your honor, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.